everybody, and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks, based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending mid-August. Welcome to Episode 8, Nunavut. This is a really exciting episode for me. When I first started this project back in May, I began thinking of how I wanted to structure this podcast, so what kind of stories to include, and all sorts of logistics. I also began to do some preliminary research on each province and territory, and I was afraid to say that Nunavut did not look promising. I had only found a handful of stories, and many of those were just snippets of things like, this one boring thing happens here, I think, or I felt someone touch my shoulder. Nothing worth including on a podcast, and certainly nothing with a story behind it. That all changed when I began to look through published articles off of university databases. At first, I found one or two eerie tales about European explorers in the north, but nothing about ghosts. Then the rabbit hole opened up, and I discovered a wealth of documented journals and diaries from these explorers recounting supernatural dreams, premonitions, clairvoyance, seances, ghosts, specters, and even zombies. And while some of these stories just involve European explorers, I was happy to be able to include a good chunk of stories that also involve the people native to the lands. Again, for reasons I mentioned in the Manitoba episode, I've stayed away from traditional Inuit folklore and legends, but also with this episode, there is such a strong reliance on oral history that it is difficult to find any documented stories from any Inuit in the area. As such, most of the stories are told through the eyes of European explorers, but don't let that blind you from the rich and long-standing history of the people in that land. The first of our stories involves the relationship between the explorers and one such person, who proved to be quite wise and powerful. The second story will give us a sampling of a strong supernatural experience common among those involved in the Arctic expeditions of the 19th century. Premonitions. George Francis Lyon was second in command of Sir William Edward Perry's Northwest Passage Expedition of 1821 to 1823. As winter set in, they found they could go no further, and ended up spending months stuck by what they called the Melville Peninsula. Fortunately, they were near the community of Igloolik, and George Lyon especially enjoyed visiting with the Inuit of the area. One man with whom he became fast friends 
was an Igluligniuk man named Tuolumac. I apologize, by the way, for this entire episode for anyone listening who does speak these languages and my mispronunciation of any of these words. Tuolumac was a hunter, storyteller, and healer who told Lion of his supernatural dreams. Lion was interested but skeptical, and asked Tuolumac to recount a recent dream of his. Tuolumac obliged, and described how he was standing out on the ice, when an object appeared, hurling itself rapidly toward him. He became frightened, but it stopped right before him, and turned out to be Lion with an axe in his outstretched arms, offering it as a gift. Lion fired back, saying he too had had a dream, but where he turned away Tuolumac for begging. It was nothing more than a joke between the two friends, but that wouldn't be the last Lion would hear of Tuolumac's connection with the supernatural. One winter night, or day, it's hard to say as it was constantly dark, Tuolumac was invited to Lion's cabin aboard the Hecla to perform what Lion knew as a seance. It was just the two men and an old woman, Tuolumac's partner. Within thirty seconds of their start, Lion began to hear a distant wind fast approaching. There seemed to be a hollow, powerful voice mixed into it, much different than any of their voices. Tuolumac's partner interpreted it to be a Turngak, a helping spirit. Lion could ask questions of it should he want, and he certainly did. The Turngak responded by way of loud slaps on the deck of the ship amidst the rising jumble of hisses, groans, and shouts from the outside wind. Tuolumac's partner began to sing along with it in her low, husky voice, full of energy. This all became too intense for Lion, and in his words, he, the white man, cried repeatedly that he was very much afraid. The intensity picked up, and the wind began pounding the ship even harder, while the voices seemed to emanate from all around him. Terrified, Lion asked if he could leave. That's when the voices sank down low. The hissing disappeared, and the sounds devolved into drones on the winds. Without taking a breath, Tuolumac seemed to cry out that the Turngak was returning back to its home. Everything went quiet. Tuolumac's notoriety grew among the white men. He became a trusted source of information for them, and a good friend. They asked if he could find out for them if their ships would achieve their mission of finding the Northwest Passage. Tuolumac invited them into his home and called upon a Turngak, who said that the ice was too thick, and they would end up returning to Europe. The captain, Sir William Perry, ignored this and gave orders to press onward. Perry did not seem to put as much stock into Tuolumac's wisdom as others had. Indeed, he claimed to be the first white man to quote-unquote discover these Inuit, despite Tuolumac telling him multiple times about three previous ships he had met. Well, the two ships, the Fury and the Hecla of Perry's expedition, did press on, but were turned back by ice at what's now known as the Fury and Hecla Strait, not very far from Iglulik. They ended up returning home. It seemed the spirits had been entirely correct. The men had learned that one sought the Inuit shaman Tuolumac for proper counsel, and not for exhibition or entertainment as one might with a medium back at home.
There are many stories about supernatural dreams among Arctic explorers, but there are just as many accounts of friends and family back home having sudden premonitions or visions about the fate of their loved ones. You might call these forerunners, but in some cases they happen in real time and do not concern the future. While explorer Frederick Cook had claimed the ghosts of dead explorers accompanied him on his journey to the North Pole, others feared the ghosts of their deceased comrades. Edward Belcher noticed a wolf that had been hanging around his ship trapped in ice and believed it to be the spirit of his friend who had died on Franklin's ship Erebus. Belcher and his men steered very clear of this apparition that followed them. Others, like the infamous medium Daniel Douglas Hume, had visions of the fate of their family members. Hume saw his brother die while on an expedition in the 1850s to the Arctic. The wife of T.C. Pullen, who was second in command on the North Star in search of Franklin, had this to say. She dreamt she was on the deck of the North Star, which was deserted. Little bits of paper, thousands of them, littered the ship. Each one seemed to read the same thing. From the log of HMS North Star, September 30th, 1852. She awoke with a start and wrote down the date before she could forget it. The next letter she received from her husband happened to note that he had been saved from certain death on September 30th, 1852. The father of American Lieutenant Charles Chip of the Jeannette North Pole Expedition had a dream in June of 1881 that the Jeannette was being crushed by ice. Indeed, the ship was destroyed by ice flows on the 12th of June, 1881, hundreds of miles north of Siberia. Chip died in the journey southward toward the Lena Delta. Another man aboard that ship was engineer George Melville. On the night before the wreck, his wife at home retired to her room and went to an uneasy sleep. She hadn't heard of her husband's ship for many days, and had lost hope of ever seeing him again. She was awoken that night, not by any sound or not by any movement, but by the feeling of someone standing in her room. She opened her eyes to see George, standing by the bedside. "'Count the bells! Count the bells!' he was saying, and Mrs. Melville heard a ship's bell ringing in the distance. Eight bells!' George exclaimed. "'The Jeanette is lost!' And with that he vanished. Before Mrs. Melville could realize what happened, her thoughts were interrupted by the grandfather clock in the house striking 4 a.m., the exact hour that the Jeanette sunk beneath the ice. Fortunately, George Melville was one of the lucky few who made it safely to Siberia. The last premonition that we'll discuss today comes from a man who was up near Greenland on his own expedition. Isaac Israel Hayes had dreamed that he stood with fellow traveler August Sontag far out on the frozen sea. A crash was heard off in the darkness, and he looked down to see the ice splintering beneath them. Sontag began to drift away on his little floe, and Hayes could only stand there and watch. As it turned out, the day before the dream, Sontag and Hans Hendrik had set off sledging to a known Inuit community on Northumberland Island to acquire new sled dogs. Most of their dogs had died during rough weather, and they would need more if they were to continue. While Sontag and Hendrik were making their way toward Northumberland Island, they encountered horrible weather. 
There was a loud crash in the distance, and the ice cracked like lightning. Sontag fell through into the frigid water. Hendrik pulled him out, but Sontag was now barely breathing. He died within a few hours. Hayes heard about it on Hendrik's return, but never told anyone about his dream foreshadowing August Sontag's death. Those first two stories were entirely linked with the past, but now I'd like to turn to some more modern stories, including a few at the end from this very decade. In November of 1971, 12 government representatives landed in the community of Toloyuak for study. Teloyuak is a small village on the southern end of the Boothia Peninsula, the part that connects the peninsula to the rest of the Nunavut mainland. To the southwest lies a large ocean bay. To the northeast lies the sizable Middle Lake, and not far beyond that is more ocean. So you can imagine the intensity of winter storms Teloyuak can receive. It was just such a winter storm that swept in right before the representatives were about to board their plane and head home. The freezing air, surging wind, and blinding snow grounded all flight activity, and the representatives were forced to weather out the storm into Loyuak. Fortunately, the locals were very understanding and welcomed the stranded men to an extended stay. The reps took shelter in the old Hudson's Bay Company building, where they were kept company and entertained through local ghost stories. One elderly woman who was telling stories shared one she had witnessed back in the early 1900s. It's not a story of a haunting by any stretch of the imagination, but it certainly involves spirits. In those days, Teloyuak had a shaman who was not acting in accordance with his ancestors' wishes. As such, they would block him from many of his practices, frustrating the man who believed what he was doing was right. Tensions erupted one sunny day when a fight broke out between the shaman and his ancestors. The whole community was drawn to the commotion as the spirits moved in between and among the ice houses, blocking out the clear ice blocks in the roofs and throwing the houses into shadow. It was a rather violent affair, with quite graphic movements on the part of the shaman. Only he could see the spirits which were battling with him. The spectral siege lasted for hours, and by the end the shaman had received multiple gashes in his arms and legs for his troubles. Now the fight had finished, but what is not clear from the story is whether the shaman submitted to his ancestors' wishes, or if he was triumphant in taking his stand. The representatives listened, drawn in by the words the woman wove, a story certainly told much more profoundly than what I have attempted today but were nothing more than entertained. Perhaps they took it rather lightly and silently dismissed it as amusing fiction. I'm wondering if one of the other locals who was with them noticed this and decided to make things a little bit more personal. Ernest was his name, and he began to speak directly to the visitors about their accommodations for the night. 
the Hudson's Bay Company building. He recounted how, a few years ago, a woman was murdered outside the community. It was in the thick of winter, and the ground was too frozen for any kind of burial, so the community brought her body into the HBC building to rest until spring, when a grave could be dug for her and a proper funeral held. The weeks rolled by, and everyone in the community couldn't help but think of the poor woman's body lying exposed inside the old colonial building. Finally, the days got warmer and the ground started to thaw. The funeral came and went, and that night a few people sat down for dinner in the Hudson's Bay Company building, now free of any corpses. They were gathered around the table, eating and chatting, when a sudden noise cut through the merrymaking like a blade. They all turned their heads to see that the dining room door had unlatched itself and swung open. They stared, in shocked silence, not able to understand what had caused it to open up like that. It was during this moment of quietness that they heard very clear and very steady footsteps echo through the room as if somebody had walked through the door right up to their table, and then lastly, they heard a noise like someone clearing their throat. Well... That made for a very uncomfortable end to their dining that night, and eventually they all left and returned home for the evening. For many days after, footsteps and throat clearing were heard all throughout the building until the community members just grew to accept it. Ernest himself had tried to hide in the kitchen and catch anyone who might be pulling a prank, but was simply met by the sound of footsteps and more doors opening by themselves. Seeing that his guests were now very wide-eyed and alert, Ernest decided that it was time for bed. He wished them all a good night's sleep inside the HBC building, but not before reminding them that the community still considers it very haunted, and that the ghost has by no means left. The locals departed, leaving the stranded representatives alone inside the dark and empty building with nothing but the howling of the wind outside to keep them company. One by one, they nestled into their cots, but I doubt that many slipped off to sleep very easily. The storm did not last very long, and within a few days they were up in the air and headed home to relay the results of their studies in Teloyuak and the stories they had all learned. The ghost may very well still be in the Hudson's Bay Company building, but if any of the representatives encountered it during their stay, they did not say a word about it. After all, they were government employees. What would you expect them to do? If you had to guess a type of ghost story that would follow us up to Nunavut from the previous places we visited, I don't think you would be about to guess that ghosts who guard buried treasure would be one. Yes, pirates and pirate treasure are what we find on a Glulik point, or at least hereabout. There is apparently treasure buried near there, and it's guarded by three ghosts. The whole area is one to avoid, whether you're seeking the loot or not. Unlike some of the other pirate ghosts we've heard about, 
These ones are not content with trapping the treasure or simply scaring you off. No, these ones are quite aggressive and will attack. A few elders know exactly where the treasure is buried, but no one is about to go and dig it up. Even if you get past the ghosts, you have to make a decision on what to do with the treasure. If you find it and take it, you may be cursed. If you find it and leave it, it moves to a different location. At least by doing nothing, it stays in a known location and no one gets cursed. That doesn't mean the effects of the ghosts aren't felt, though. A man was riding his mini Honda motorcycle through the area, unaware of the treasure and certainly not looking for it. Nonetheless, he was grabbed by an unseen hand and pulled off his bike, flying through the air and landing miraculously unscathed. He stopped cycling through there afterward, though. A common experience is having rocks thrown at you, in the style of hobbits from the Shire, perhaps. There is a walrus hunting camp nearby, and one of the hunters had intended to walk back to town via the shortcut, which, of course, happened to pass right through the area. As he was walking, he had a sudden feeling that he was not alone. His hair stood on end, and he got the chills. Pressing on, he cautiously put one foot in front of the other, keeping a sharp eye out for ghosts or pirates, or both. Suddenly, a clattering rang out from behind him. Someone had tossed some rocks in his direction. He called out, demanding the prankster to show himself, but no one stepped forth. More rocks appeared sailing in his direction, hitting him this time in the side. In addition, something punched him in the back, and right after he could feel icy hands on his chest as something pushed him from the front. More rocks thudded into his back, narrowly missing his head, and that was too much for the walrus hunter. He ran back to camp, pale, bruised, and scared. Now, I don't know where you would want to go if you wanted to dig for buried treasure. All the places we've looked at so far have their dangers. There's plenty of sites out in Nova Scotia and PEI, some in Newfoundland, and now you've even learned about one in Nunavut, although I doubt it's from Captain Kidd. If you decide to seek this northern one, make sure you don't just bring a shovel. Get your hands on a nice helmet and shield, too. Holly woke up in the middle of the night to hear her four-year-old daughter crying in her room. She pulled back the covers, opened the bedroom door, and walked down the dark hallway. Behind her daughter's closed bedroom door, she could hear her daughter moaning and moving around in her bed, so Holly pushed open the door and approached the bed. Her daughter was asleep, but continuing to writhe and whimper like she was having a bad dream. Instead of waking her, Holly tried a trick she learned from her mother. She wrapped a knife in a towel and stuck it underneath the mattress. 
then went back to her own bed and crawled in. While Holly was lying face down under her sheets, she heard her daughter stop crying. Holly smiled to herself and closed her eyes. Within a few moments, though, her bedroom door opened, and Holly felt her daughter crawl up onto the bed at her feet. She sighed. It looked like once again her daughter had woken up and gotten lonely, so had come to join her mama in bed. Holly never got much sleep on those nights. Just as she was about to say something to her daughter, she suddenly felt an icy hand grab her inner thigh, as if something had reached through the sheets to get at her. She screamed and flipped around, turning on the lamp. Nothing was in her room, and her door was closed. Holly felt as if something was lingering in her room there, something bad. She began to pray for it to go away, and took measures to protect her house against any evil energies. A few days later, her daughter asked a question that shook Holly to the core. Mama, she asked, why doesn't Boo-Boo go into your room anymore? Boo-Boo? Who the heck was that? Her daughter didn't know. She just knew that Boo-Boo now stands outside her bedroom door in the hall, waiting for Holly to come out. And he stands there all night. This entirely freaked Holly out, and she had the house blessed the next day. After that... Her daughter never reported seeing Boo-Boo ever again. I wonder where he went. We're about to dive back into the past and we'll start with a very well-documented encounter in the Arctic waters off of Baffin Island. It's funny, I was reading in Barbara Smith's books a little thought she had about nomenclature and terminology. If deserted towns are called ghost towns, then shouldn't deserted ships be called ghost ships? Well, the term ghost ship is already used for spectral boats that vanish into thin air, so our next story is not about a ghost ship, but rather a derelict. In the year of 1761, a ship was leaving London bound for China. It navigated the long and treacherous journey safely, loaded up with goods, and pointed homeward. The weather that year had been very warm, and the waters unusually calm. The captain figured they would try something rather daring. They would attempt to return via the fabled Northwest Passage, something that had never yet been done. They would be heading deep into uncharted waters, but the balmy weather gave them a false sense of hope as they set course northeast. They were never heard from again. Over a decade later, on the 11th of October, 1775, the whaling ship Herald was plying its trade in the waters between Baffin Island and Greenland when they saw another ship on the horizon, sails tattered and torn, and seemingly drifting. They decided to approach and provide what assistance they could. No one appeared on deck of the floating ship, and no one responded to their calls. 
Concerned but wary, the captain hesitantly gave the order to board the drifting ship. They found it entirely deserted and coated with ice. With nothing of note on the exterior, they went below deck to try and uncover some clue as to its present state. It was down in the lightless belly of the ship that they discovered a horrifying scene. Twenty-eight men were waiting for them there, each frozen to death where they lay. They immediately took note of the corpse of what seemed to have been the captain. He sat at a desk in a separate room, pen still in hand, and book open in front of him. Behind him they saw a woman wrapped in a blanket and frozen to a young boy, likely the captain's family. The visitors grabbed the book from the desk and hightailed it out of there as fast as they could go. The ship was cursed, they figured, and another second down there with all those bodies would do them no good. In their frightened haste, the middle section of the book was ripped out and left upon the floating ship. No one was about to go and retrieve it. While in the safety of their own, very warm quarters, they began to piece together the history of the ship from what they had found in the captain's log they had taken. The ship had left London in 1761 and arrived in China. It had elected to take the Northwest Passage home, but had become locked in ice. The last recorded position was 250 miles north of what we now know as Utkiavik, Alaska, formerly known as Barrow. The whalers looked around at each other. While all on board the ship to London had perished, the boat itself had successfully navigated the Northwest Passage on its own, albeit over several years. What was there for them to do? They kept the log, but let the ship drift, turning their backs on it and sailing far away. That ship, the Octavius, was never seen again. The Octavius is one of the world's most famous derelict ships, perhaps along with the Mary Celeste, which incidentally was built in Parsboro, Nova Scotia. But now we look to our final set of stories, which involve perhaps the most famous ships of all that ever dared sail the Arctic seas, the Terror and Erebus. It will come as no surprise to you that the infamous Franklin Expedition of 1845 is associated with ghosts and the supernatural, given how horrifically it all ended, but you might be surprised to hear that much of the supernatural associations with it come from the attempts to find the stranded men, and not directly linked to the men themselves. In the Nova Scotia episode, we ventured into the village of Londonderry, Colchester County, where we learned about the unfortunate Lucy Clark who was axed to death by her brother and buried in the riverbed. Well, in Londonderry, Northern Ireland, a very different event began to unfold in 1850. Shipbuilder William Coppin and his family were visited by the spirit of their deceased daughter, Wheesy, in the form of a blue orb. After confirming that it was truly her, 
her family launched into a series of questions. You see, spiritualism had gained steam and was very popular in those days, and one of the main features of communicating with the dead was that you could ask the deceased any question about the natural world and you would receive a correct answer. I'm not sure where that idea got started, but we hear of it even in modern spiritualist stories when, for example, police enlist mediums to aid in finding missing people or murderers. Anyway, the Coppins knew they might not have another chance at this, and so clearly and carefully entrusted their questions with Weesey. They were desperate, they told her, to know the fate of the Franklin Expedition. Of course, news of the Franklin Expedition was all the rage, as the company had set sail five years earlier and went on to disappear into the vast North American Arctic. Weesey obliged their requests by way of a direct but cryptic response. Erebus and Terror, Sir John Franklin, Lancaster Sound, Prince Regent Inlet, Point Victory, Victoria Channel. With that, Weezy's spirit departed. Now, I've taken the liberty of looking into these geographical place names, and they're not very far off from guiding a ship to the locations of where the Terror and Erebus were eventually found. Of course, no one would have known that at the time, but William Coppin was certainly very ready to try. As soon as he was able, he wrote to Lady Jane Franklin herself and informed her of Weezy's instructions. Lady Franklin was quite moved by this revelation. Indeed, she was quite set on finding the whereabouts of her husband and his crew. He had set out on this last trip to the Arctic as a veteran of those lands. This was his fourth voyage out there, having been asked to command the expedition by the government. Despite his age of 59 years old, he accepted, possibly to reclaim some of his lost glory as an important British explorer. He was best known before his 1845 departure as the man who ate his boots, a moniker he acquired after the somewhat disastrous copper mine mission in 1819, where he lost half his men and was forced to eat lichen and the leather from his boots to survive. Becoming the man to discover the fabled Northwest Passage would seal his legacy in gold. His failure and disappearance only detracted from his already suspect exploring success, and Lady Franklin would have been all too aware of this, which is why, perhaps, she was so willing to give Coppin's spiritualist suggestion a try. She instructed new expeditions to search the Prince Regent Inlet area. The ships arrived at a place they named Bellot Strait, but from there they turned and sailed off in the wrong direction, bringing an end to any possible chance of success for that attempt, though of course they wouldn't have known it. Eventually, a voyage led by Leopold McClintock landed on King William Island and discovered the cairn which held a document recording Sir John Franklin's death and other clues as to the fate of his crew. Where exactly was this cairn found? On Victory Point, one of the locations mentioned by the ghost of Wheezy Coppin in 1850, of course. The story of Wheezy's message was kept a secret for many years. No one associated with the process wanted the public to know that expensive ventures into a treacherous part of the world were being influenced by messages from beyond the grave. Spiritualism may have been quite sensational in the 19th century, but it was also something that was under heavy skepticism. Eventually, the story did get out in 1889, after Lady Jane Franklin had passed away. 
McClintock and fellow explorer John Ray immediately denied any association with spirits and dubious messages from dead Irish girls, but private letters between them and Lady Franklin held in the Scott Polar Research Institute say otherwise. Apparently, Lady Franklin had sought the counsel and assistance of many clairvoyants and mediums in her efforts to bring her and her husband's careers to dignified closure, and these mediums would guide major decisions made by the Admiralty and the Royal Geographic Society in their investigations. You might have thought that William Coppin's daughter was the beginning and end of spiritualism and the exploration of the land that became known as Nunavut, but you would be dead wrong. With news of the Franklin disappearance somewhere in what we know as Nunavut spreading like wildfire across the Commonwealth, more and more people began to step forward claiming to be able to help through supernatural means. The best way to help would, of course, be to see Franklin and his ships. The £20,000 reward for his discovery literally had men dreaming about being the ones to find him and collect the fortune. Some men on the first Grinnell expedition in 1850 dreamt of finding Franklin in a beautiful cove lined by orange trees, hidden somewhere in the Arctic. Others simply dreamed of visiting Cape Wanderer and returning loaded up with watermelons. Okay. These men, stuck on ships in a dark, wintry desert, may simply have been yearning for some kind of tropical oasis to take refuge in, and yet there were some people who claimed to be able to actively seek out Franklin's location right from the seats of their very own English homes, the clairvoyants. To understand the subset of spiritualism known as clairvoyance and its connection with the supernatural, we've got to begin with mesmerism. Friedrich Mesmer was a German experimental therapist who developed a sort of technique in the mid to late 1700s which is closely associated with what we now know as hypnotism. The idea was that by putting a person into a trance, they could access a vein of knowledge beyond the ordinary. They could cure diseases and solve mysteries. Clairvoyance, as this became known, was defined as the direct and immediate perception of absent or distant objects without the use of eyes. And with or without the aid of a mesmerist, the clairvoyant could sometimes be able to make very specific and intentional searches. If they really could do this, then they could see exactly where Franklin's ships were, how well the expedition was faring, how much supplies they had left, and what Franklin was intending to do. Moreover, if anyone had perished, they could discover who, where, and how by communicating with them. 
with spiritualism and clairvoyance under heavy public skepticism, locating the Franklin expedition provided the perfect challenge. If they could succeed, they would win international acclaim. For the people in charge of finding Franklin and his men, the emergence of clairvoyance posed a rather curious dilemma. Should they ignore the supernatural advice and therefore turn down the possibility of his exact location? Such a tantalizing prospect was hard to refuse. However, if they acted on these suggestions and met with disastrous consequences and utter failure, it would mean thousands of dollars, years of time, and hundreds of lives wasted all because of unscientific and whimsical proclamations. What was the Admiralty to do? I think you know the answer. Ellen Dawson was a young, sickly-looking girl who seemed to possess incredible abilities as a clairvoyant. Her reputation grew and attracted some of the wealthy elite, including Lady Jane Franklin and her niece Sophia Krakoft, who began to frequent Ellen and her mesmerist, Mr. Haunt. On their first visit, Ellen entered a trance and reported two ships enclosed by ice floes, several men, including John Franklin, dressed in fur with plenty to eat, and who smelled of brandy. They were in good spirits and good health, and to boot, not far off were ships led by Sir James Ross. Rescue was inevitable. At least, that's what was told to Lady Jane, who waited in the other room while Ellen was in her trance. Sophia was present during the trances, but her questions to Ellen were met with vague and general answers. Any request for more detail would simply cloud Ellen's vision. Sophia began to suspect Ellen was hiding something. Indeed, at a later visit, Ellen confided that she had kept the truth from Lady Franklin for fear of causing her grief. What Ellen had actually been seeing painted a much bleaker picture. There were two ships so blocked in by ice that they could not escape. It would be about nine months before any ships could get near, and that's if they knew where to look. Franklin was still alive. Editors note this was not true. He died in 1847. And they would best be accessed not by the east, but from the west via the Bering Strait. Well, Lady Franklin found out anyway, but did not give up hope. There were plenty more clairvoyants who could help out. She decided to get a second opinion, so to speak. As you'll find out, those second opinions differed wildly from one another. The thirteen-year-old son of Lieutenant Morrison was paid a few visits by Lady Franklin and Sophia. He was said to possess the sight, and his father would relay questions to him where he would consult a crystal ball from India which would serve to connect him with helpful spirits named Orion and Gigo. Orion dutifully answered the call when asked about John Franklin. According to Orion, Franklin was alive and well, already on his way home from a place called Franklin Island, northwest of Melville Island. That was interesting news. Where exactly was this Franklin Island? Orion responded, I do not know. Goodbye. Lieutenant Morrison encouraged Lady Franklin to come back next week, which she did, whereupon she pressed the same question. Where exactly was this mythical island? Somewhat offended, the crystal ball retorted, That was told last time. It looked like no help was to be had from this sassy spirit. 
it was while lady franklin was taking her own course of action that one of john franklin's dear friends captain alexander mcconachie of the royal geographic society applied to his own potential source of information a clairvoyant from bolton named emma captain mcconachie was quite devoted to the idea of spiritual assistance having already tried other clairvoyants in london and paris with limited success he attended three of emma's sessions and was very impressed he began to make inquiries to emma about the franklin expedition and kept the admiralty informed of all his findings they listened intently to the trusted mcconachie and furnished emma with most recent news from the arctic some of franklin and captain crozier's past letters maps of the arctic and even a lock of franklin's hair this may have been their biggest mistake with so much to go off it would be a walk in the park for emma to fabricate some answers she may have been slow to realize this however as at first all emma would tell them was what franklin looked like they knew that already the admiralty became quite upset with this she is strikingly correct one officer reported she gives a perfect transcript of the descriptions i wrote to her apparently she attempted descriptions of another man on the expedition uh mr saunders but without a prior image to go off her descriptions of him were quote, anything but strikingly correct humbug according to captain hamilton of the admiralty sensing she was losing them emma provided new information location northwest hudson bay 85 degrees west making his way to churchill on foot intending to overwinter there that was promising what else could she say well now franklin was in prince regent inlet then later lowther island then north of the perry islands how was this possible and why would franklin abandon the safety of churchill for these strange places seven hundred miles away in her efforts to retain their attention emma had blown it they turned to someone else that someone's name was jenny jenny saw a ship that had been locked in ice for three to four years john and about a dozen others were still on board with lots of game to eat and plenty of provisions left in stock some men were below deck unseen but alive others were dead jenny was upset that the men hadn't tried to get out of the ship yet they are a set of stupid blockheads she exclaimed she gave the location as being north of the bering strait and advised the admiralty to send three shiploads of salt to melt the ice and free the trapped terror and erebus now that was some creative thinking which the admiralty took a shine to where should they go jenny stumbled at this she said to send ships to the edge of the ice and from there they will see franklin and his men the edge of the ice happened to be over one thousand miles away from where she said the ships were trapped perhaps jenny could have seen them from there but certainly not the sailors may we have our next contestant please john park a twenty-two-year-old tailor from peterhead published his vision he had seen franklin's ships on the east coast of somerset island they were in good shape men were hunting fishing repairing the ship and communing with the inuit in the area why franklin himself was lying comfortably in bed with a hymnal and a prayer book at his side to prove his credibility park also provided the names of sailors and ships in the north american arctic what was supposed to be proof of his authenticity ended up being his undoing 
The sailors and ships he named were veritable names, all of which were off in places like Svalbard and nowhere close to where Park had said they were. It turned out to be just an elaborate scheme. Lastly, while John Park had been concocting his attempt at fame, Parker Snow was having a much different experience. He was about to set sail as second in command of the Prince Albert in search of Franklin. While in bed, he saw a vivid picture of the Boothia Peninsula and King William Island. There in the ocean were two ice-bound abandoned ships, one northwest of Victory Point, does that name ring a bell? And the other south of King William Island near the continental coast. Across the island itself were lifeless bodies, while a few living men remained in small camps and others traveling by foot on the mainland. Franklin was not seen. Snow jolted awake and rushed to his desk to record what he saw and sketch out a rough map. He urged Lady Franklin to send 100 men by way of Hudson Bay. He was certain that he knew that this is where they would be found. Sadly, she did not listen to him. The only thing that set Parker Snow apart from all the others to whom she had listened is that he did not reveal that he had received a clairvoyant vision. We know now that of all the accounts who guided, or at least attempted to guide, the Admiralty and search for Franklin's lost men, Parker Snow was the closest to being dead on. There is one more chapter to the Franklin saga I would like to tell you, and that is how it connects back to the people that have lived in those lands since time immemorial. But before I can do that, I have to make some important announcements. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books and journal entries. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2018 by Touchwood Editions and available online through Amazon and Chapters Indigo, or in stores wherever fine books are sold. Ghost Stories of the Sea by Barbara Smith, published in 2003 by Ghost House Books and Barbara Smith, Available online through Amazon, Chapters Indigo, abebooks.com, and lonepinepublishing.com. Spectral Arctic, A History of Dreams and Ghosts in Polar Exploration, by Shane McCorriston, published in 2018 by UCL Press and accessed through jstore.org. Polar Otherworlds, Dreams and Ghosts in Arctic Exploration, by Shane McCorriston, a lecture given at the 14th Annual Ernest Shackleton Autumn School in 2014 in Ireland, and accessed through academia.edu. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab, and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, Ah, for just one time, I would take the Northwest Passage to find the hand of Franklin reaching for the Ghost Stories of Canada podcast. Or 
something like that. I apologize to all you Stan Rogers fans out there. A special thank you to Podbean user ZMZ9WL for their very wonderful comment on the Newfoundland episode, by the way. Thank you so much for your kind words. The music for the podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I am one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. Our next episode will be released on Monday, July 29th, and will explore the paranormal history and ghost stories of Saskatchewan. Ghost lights and river wraiths await us after the weekend, so don't be late. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30am and 2.00pm. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30pm for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30pm. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitor's Information Centre. The only exception is our Chinatown History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. My original plan for this episode was to write it all on Wednesday and record through the night to have it up Thursday morning, and so I could record without noise pollution from the streets outside. However, I became so engrossed in the research for this episode that I spent hours longer preparing to write than I had intended. This meant that I was sitting in a dark room at midnight, typing away at my computer, and becoming slightly nervous, then a bit jumpy, then downright frightened at what I was reading through. I had hoped to record in the night, but I couldn't bring myself to finish any more stories, let alone speak them aloud after piecing together this final story. I had to listen to some music and go to bed instead. So if you're alone right now, curled up under your covers and listening to this before going to sleep, good luck. Superstition might have conjured up some portentous forms, accompanied by a host of terrors, for strange sounds were often abroad in the air, caused by the meeting of masses of disjointed ice, or the splitting of the rocks with the intensity of the cold. Even the piteous cry of the seal was sometimes sufficient to create an alarm. There were noises also on the deep and the shore, for which they could not account, so that these temporary exiles from their native land were often like the people in Egypt during the plague of darkness when in the sublime description of Apocrypha they heard the sound of fearful things rushing by, even by their doors and in their chambers, but saw not the form thereof. Those are the solemn words of a sailor aboard John Ross's Victory Expedition. The environment of the Arctic can be a very frightening and deadly place for those who are not equipped to deal with it. In some cases, the isolation is enough to drive a person out of their senses. The men who accompanied John Franklin on his fateful expedition in 1845 succumbed to such damnation. 
Some yearned for the fiery depths of hell after winters in the ice and snow. Other, more introspective men had realized that hell had already arrived, and it was their burden to live it out until their last breath. These men would leave their ships behind, trudging through the snow and ice southwards toward death, fooling themselves that they would somehow arrive at the nearest outpost hundreds of miles away. These men were seen by many Inuit during their last months. Some were raving lunatics, rambling about and gesticulating wildly. Others were empty, lifeless creatures sleeping in hollowed-out seal carcasses. Many of them were seen carrying human meat. If they weren't seen, then their traces were. Items in clothing were scattered across the land. They had brought useless tools and knick-knacks on their death marches, things they would never have need for out in the elements. Did they simply lack the wherewithal at that point to pack only what was necessary, or were they stubborn enough to try and survive a British man's fight? If it was the latter, they failed miserably. Among the relics left in the snow were sun-bleached human bones covered in knife and tooth marks, a proper gentleman's death, they did not succeed. The openness of the Arctic world can be oppressing. Out there we tend not to distract ourselves with benign little hauntings and spooky stories. The pure thought of existence for those who are not accustomed to the environment is terrifying on its own. With no authorities and no safety net, you're also left at the mercy of your companions. No one is there to stop them from harming you. No one is there to rescue you if you're in trouble. What's more is that with little company and little change in landscape, one's mind begins to play tricks. John Richardson of Franklin's first Arctic expedition writes, A stillness so profound prevails that we are ready to start at the noise created by the pressure of our feet on the snow. The screams of a famished raven, or the crash of a lofty pine, rending through the intenseness of the frost, are the only sounds that invade the solemn silence. When in my walks I have accidentally met one of my companions in this dreary solitude, his figure, emerging from the shade, has conveyed with irresistible force to my mind the idea of being rising from the grave. I have often admired the pictures our great poets have drawn of absolute solitude, but never felt their full force till now. What must be the situation of a human being alone on the wide, wide sea? One story about the last remnants of the Franklin explorers comes to us via Inuit oral history and originates from an encampment on King William Island around 1850. Most of the men were away seal hunting in this camp, leaving the women and children alone with an old man. While they were inside, they heard the unmistakable sound of footsteps crunching in the snow outside their igloo. It fell to the old man to venture out and investigate. 
he stepped out into the snow and laid eyes upon eight or nine twisted figures with empty eyes and cold blue skin they were feeling the igloo with their hands clearly long blinded by the sun and unable to see the old man stepped forward and placed his fingertips on their skin they were alive he figured but they weren't inuit i've never in all my life seen a devil or a spirit he thought to himself but these things are not human they were too weak to pose much of a threat so the inuit tried welcoming them into their igloo they were shy and afraid unable to speak they refused all food and seemed loath to trade anything wanting to help in some way the inuit made an igloo for these creatures complete with a fire and three seals when the men had gone inside the inuit quickly packed up and left while the visitors were not strong or alert and posed no danger to anyone awake a sleeping person would be at their mercy so the inuit left when we talk about ghosts we often think of spirits of some kind those who have passed on and communicate with us from beyond the grave another way of viewing it might be that ghosts are beings trapped between life and death no longer alive but not able to slip fully into the encompassing grasp of death either these arctic zombies are a stark reminder of how far human beings can fall call it falling from the grace of god call it falling from civilization or human reason call it whatever you want but we are all vulnerable to it under the right circumstances we're there when all logic flees us when all sense of humanity deserts us and when the line between life and death is blurred so that you're really in neither realm you're simply there a hollow shell of what used to be a thriving resourceful human being now you're nothing some time later a few of the inuit from that encampment returned to pick up a few objects which had been left behind in their haste to leave the returnees discovered the igloo they had made for the wanderers was still there and still occupied looking inside a horrible sight met their eyes it was filled with corpses the seal meat had been entirely ignored in favor of a different form of sustenance they had eaten each other